Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to 2 Timothy chapter 4. In many of the commentaries, this chapter is given a heading, such as Paul's farewell message or final charge and testimony. Introducing the first paragraph of this closing chapter, Donald Guthrie says, The solemnity of the present charge is doubly impressive as the parting advice of the aged warrior to his younger and rather timid lieutenant, closed quote. That seems to represent very well the nature and tone of this concluding chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. There are five imperatives in this bracing paragraph. Paul tells Timothy, first of all, to preach the word. He tells him, secondly, to be ready or to stand by. He tells him, thirdly, to reprove. The NIV has that as correct. He tells him, fourthly, to rebuke. The dictionary defines the underlying Greek word here as meaning to reprove, chide, censure, rebuke, reprimand, to admonish strongly enjoin strictly, close quote. The difference between rebuke and reprove seems to have to do with formal censure. Paul is telling Timothy that a pastor needs to be prepared to censure ideas and even people for the safety and well-being of the flock. He tells him fifthly and finally to exhort. The NIV has that as encourage. This is the more positive side of teaching. It has the sense of building up, making strong, and bringing comfort. These are the sorts of tasks that a pastor must do with complete patience and teaching. That's a bit of an odd phrase. The NIV has it as with great patience and careful instruction. The NRSV has it as with the utmost patience in teaching. The basic idea here is what we used to refer to as long-suffering. Paul is recommending a certain approach, an approach that is more waterfall or river than hand grenade. It really is remarkable how much change you can make simply by keeping the pressure on over time. Proverbs 25:15 says, "With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone." That's exactly the idea here. Just keep applying the truth of the scripture. Pull it out, press it home, teach, rebuke, correct, reprove, exhort, and repeat as necessary. That's the job, Timothy. Lean into it over the long haul. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The word for there at the start of verse 3 is a 
causal conjunction, meaning it has the sense of because. Why should Timothy commit to this discipline of patient, long-suffering instruction? Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So the idea seems to be that the best way to inoculate your people against the spirit of the age is through patient, comprehensive, positive, and negative whole Bible teaching. Now, the idiom Paul uses here about itching ears seems to suggest superficiality, kind of like our expression, scratching the surface. What he seems to be saying is that people will generally prefer superficial teaching that doesn't confront and that doesn't interfere with the desires of the flesh. You know, jibber-jabber to me about something Christian-ish while I continue on over here indulging my passions. That's the spirit of the age. That's what people are going to want. That's what they're going to ask for if they have not been taught to love the whole word of God. They will explore and splash about in the shallow waters, wanting nothing to do with the deep, penetrating word of God, preferring instead the silly and the insubstantial. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The essence of Paul's counsel here seems to have to do with distraction and resilience. He's saying, don't be distracted by silliness and don't be deterred by suffering. Press through that. Do your job. The word translated as sober-minded has the sense of moral alertness. So Paul is telling Timothy to keep his wits about him and to press through obstacles so as to do the work of a gospel preacher. The word evangelist there likely doesn't imply the office of evangelist in any formal sense. Rather, it just seems to mean gospel preacher. Gospel preaching is the ministry to which Timothy has been called. And Paul wants him to carry on because it appears his own days are numbered. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The ESV translation somewhat obscures the thematic connection here between verse 5 and verse 6. It would be easier for us to spot if they had rendered it along the lines of as for you in verse 5 and then as for me in verse 6. That would have been helpful just in terms of bringing the pathos and drama here to the surface. Verse 5 is giving us Paul's closing counsel to Timothy. Carry on, endure, keep your wits, fulfill your ministry. But as for me, my race has come to an end. There is nothing more for me but death, judgment, and reward. In verse 8, he speaks about the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Now, that's not a special crown reserved for the apostles and the Christian elite. Paul goes right on to say, not only for me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So this crown is the crown given to all true believers on Judgment Day. Remember, earlier in the letter, in 2 Timothy 2, 11-12, Paul said, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, 11-12. So this is that. Paul is saying, if we endure, if we wait and long and, and watch for his 
appearing. If we hold fast the confession of our faith, then we will receive a crown and we will reign with him. See, there's no crown without the cross for Christians. There was no crown without a cross for Jesus, and there will be no crown without a cross for you. There will be no crown without endurance, no crown without suffering, no crown without holding faith under fire. Having endured so much and having kept the faith through all of that, that is what Paul is focused on now. As such, he begins to make his final preparations. He says to Timothy in verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Let's just pause here. This, of course, is a very human scene, as I'm sure most of us can appreciate. As I write this, my wife is preparing to visit her beloved nanny, her grandmother, for the last time. She's 96 years old and has been fading rather dramatically over the last several days. And so she is drawing her children and her grandchildren to her side. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He wants Timothy to hurry so as to see him, if at all possible, one last time. Paul is eager for the touch of friends and family. And he is keenly feeling the defection of one whom he held dear. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted him. Demas is mentioned by Paul in his epistle to the Colossians as a close companion. Colossians 4.14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Paul mentored a number of young men, and he comes off in the New Testament as a firm but loving father. He, he could definitely be firm. He was borderline harsh in his expressions of disappointment with respect to young Mark, who abandoned Paul and Barnabas halfway through their first missionary journey. Mark was young, he, he came from a wealthy home and was apparently homesick and maybe a little bit soft, and he found the pace that Paul was setting impossible to maintain. We don't know exactly what happened, we just know that he left, he didn't follow through, and Paul was fiercely disappointed in him. But then we also know that he forgave him and drew him back into his inner circle. He is one of the beloved sons that Paul summons to himself in his last hour. We'll read about that in just a moment. So Paul was an old school dad. He was, he was like a good dad from the 1940s. He was firm. He was demanding, but he was good. And, and he loved his children fiercely. But not all of his children in the faith were loyal to him. Demas is mentioned here as deserting Paul. Now, not necessarily deserting Christianity, although a later tradition suggests that he did. But all Paul says here is that he deserted him because he loved the world. We assume that means that Demas had given up on missionary work so as to make more money doing something else. And it's very easy to imagine that some of these young men who worked with Paul might grow weary of the road and of the meager rations and of the constant hardship and persecution. These were literate men, by and large, and so opportunities in commerce or government would have been plentiful. Maybe Demas wanted to get married. Maybe he wanted to own a house and raise children. We don't know. What we know is that he was called, and at some point he turned away, and Paul felt the sting of that. He mentions others who were away from him at present, though he's less specific as to why. We see that in the second half of verse 10 and following. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. 
Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So here we know that not all the younger men who were apart from Paul were apart for questionable reasons. Tychicus, for example, was out on assignment. In fact, it seems quite probable that it was Tychicus who was to carry this letter that Paul is writing, the one we're calling 2 Timothy, to Timothy in Ephesus, and who was then to relieve Timothy there as the pastor overseer so that Timothy could travel back to be with Paul in Rome. The other men mentioned also appear to have been on assignment. Crescens in Galatia, Titus in Dalmatia. Luke was his only companion at the moment, and so Paul is eager for Timothy to come, if he is able, and to pick up Mark along the way. If they are able, he asks that they stop and pick up a few supplies that will give him comfort and joy in his final hours. He says in verse 13, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. What a wonderful picture this list conjures up in our minds. We can very easily imagine the aged apostle huddling under a warm old cloak, staring beady-eyed at a ragged scroll, searching the scriptures and making inspired connections and jotting down notes for a quick letter to a friend or co-worker. And because he was ever the wise and watchful commander, he cannot help but pin some sage and prudent counsel by way of appendage. He says in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. This Alexander is probably the same Alexander mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.20, and may also be the Alexander mentioned in Acts 19.33-34. Whoever he was, he was an ardent opposer of the Apostle Paul. Paul doesn't tell Timothy to seek revenge against him. Paul will take his own advice, given in Romans 12, 19. But he will warn Timothy to give this man an extremely wide berth. Now, thinking of Alexander reminds Paul of how many have stood against him and how many have turned against him over the years. He says in verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, we don't know any of the details surrounding this particular process through the Roman court system. This imprisonment is not the same one narrated at the end of the book of Acts. It seems very likely that Paul was released from that imprisonment and that he resumed his missionary activity, only to be swept up in the outbreak of persecution that happened in the wake of the Great Fire in AD 64. There appears to have been some kind of a a sham inquiry at which no one spoke in Paul's defense. That's what he's talking about here. Now, of course, the Christians were terrified. Nero was on the rampage, and Christians were being targeted, and and many would not have had the protections that Roman citizenship afforded Paul. But still, the fact that no one came forward to stand with him wounded Paul, who, despite being an apostle, was still a human being. He acknowledges the herd and then says quickly, may it not be charged against them. Ultimately, Paul learned that the Lord is the only truly faithful friend and companion. Everyone else has their breaking point, 
but the Lord will be with us through it all. Paul is able to rejoice that despite his personal suffering, the gospel was yet again given a hearing through this trial, however swift and perfunctory it may have been. The phrase, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth, has caused some confusion. In what sense does Paul mean that? In what sense can he say that he was rescued? He's about to be executed. That's the whole point of the letter. So what does he mean by that? The Tyndale commentary says here, these words seem more intelligible if understood in a spiritual sense, closed quote. I think that's true, and I think it's reasonable given the emphasis in the following verse. Whenever we have a verse we're not sure what to do with, it's always helpful to look at the verse before or after. And in the verse right after, Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now, some have argued that what Paul was saying there was that he was one of those Christians thrown to the actual literal lion's in the Colosseum, and then for whatever reason, as he stood there preaching the gospel, the lions had no interest in him, kind of a modern-day uh, Daniel in the lion's, day, or lion's Den scenario. So Paul was put back in prison and then later beheaded. Uh, that's certainly not beyond the realm of possibility, but we have no record of that. And one presumes that a story like that would have been preserved and treasured and, and spoken of and referenced by the early church. It would also, though, have been legally impossible, given Paul's status as a Roman citizen. Uh, that sort of thing happened to slaves and prisoners of war, but the whole point of Roman citizenship was to guarantee certain rights with respect to legal process. So, on balance, it seems best to understand Paul as saying, whatever bad things have happened to me, God always springs the trap, thwarts the devil, and works some good and glorious gospel purpose. And that's what happened again in this scenario. Praise the Lord. That makes sense, grammatically and literarily, and it also serves as a really good closing sentiment. The final verses of the letter are filled with personal greetings and a word of blessing. Verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter, Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Prisca and Aquila, we know, of course, Prisca being the short form of Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila were old friends of Paul. We read about them in Acts 18. Onesiphorus is mentioned earlier in this letter, in chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. Apparently, this family was very faithful and generous in their support of Paul's ministry. He mentions Erastus, whom we met in Acts 19.22, who may have been the city treasurer of Corinth at one point, if he's the same person as the one mentioned in Romans 16.23. Trophimus was a traveling companion of Paul, mentioned back in Acts 21, verse 29. Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia are otherwise unknown in the New Testament. Claudia is a feminine name but that's all that we know about her. The other three are men, presumably other traveling companions and ministry partners. Paul's blessing in verse 22 represents a prayer for divine presence, guidance, and help, a particularly appropriate prayer given the challenges and difficulties that the apostle knows lie ahead. We don't know whether Timothy made it to Rome in time to see Paul before he died. Shortly after writing this letter, Paul was executed by beheading. He was killed at the same time, though in a different manner than the Apostle Peter. As mentioned, Paul was a Roman citizen, and therefore he was exempt from the brutality of crucifixion. Uh, 
Peter, however, was not so fortunate. He was crucified, reportedly upside down at his own request, so as not to obscure the unique glory of Jesus. These basic facts are related in a number of early sources. We have a letter, for example, from Dionysius, Bishop of Corinth, to the Christians in Rome, in which he says, In this way, by your impressive admonition, you have bound together all that has grown from the seed which Peter and Paul sowed in Romans and Corinthians alike. For both of them sowed in our Corinth and taught us jointly. In Italy, too, they taught jointly in the same city and were martyred at the same time. Close quote. Eusebius, in his classic work, The History of the Church, writes about the reign of Nero, saying, It is recorded that in his reign, Paul was beheaded in Rome itself, and that Peter was likewise crucified. Closed quote. Now, it seems odd to us that the Lord would allow two great lights such as these to be extinguished by a tyrant such as Nero. How the devil must have laughed on that day. And yet, as Paul affirmed to Timothy, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The kingdom is bigger than any one man or any two men. And the Lord knows how long to let us run and how best to bring our journeys to an end. While we admire the endurance and long-suffering of people like Paul and Peter, the story of Christianity is not ultimately their story. Nor is it ultimately the story of Timothy, Trophimus, or Claudia. The story of Christianity is ultimately the story of Jesus. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.